0: Good morning. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here. It's Good to have you all with us. And since uh, there's some new faces, I'll just review where we've been almost a year, be a year next week. Uh, we've been in the Book of Acts. Uh, the theme of the entire year-long series is Be My Witnesses. Again, the primary application for us who are Christians, that we would be witnesses to Christ. And this last section of the Book of Acts, we have entitled free indeed. Uh, To contrast the reality that Paul, our our hero apostle, is in custody for the last several chapters, and yet even though he's in custody, he's more free than anyone he comes into contact with. Free indeed. And the same is true for us, regardless of our circumstances as well. And so today uh, we're uh, transitioning uh, really to the final defense. Uh, We have seen Five, well, today will be the fifth defense that Paul makes, the defense of the gospel of Christ. You might remember the first one came on the steps of the barracks in Jerusalem as he was arrested and really rescued by the Roman officials. And then we see him give a def- defense before the Sanhedrin, as they're called together, uh, by the tribune there in Jerusalem. And then a few weeks ago, Pastor Robert preached the defense before the governor Felix. Last week, we looked at the defense before the new governor, Festus, and today the fifth and final defense before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, as well as many other people. And we ended last week by looking at Paul as he appealed to Rome. He had no choice but to appeal to Rome, and so we expect him to be in Rome, but not yet. He has one final opportunity to preach the gospel before a king of the Jews, and so that's where we will be at today. Now, last Saturday, my family and I had a fun excursion. It was Mother's Day for us. We usually celebrate on Saturdays. And uh, my wife's favorite thing is to go hike to waterfalls. And so we, I found this waterfall up near Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina, put it in the GPS, and of course we ended up at someone's house. That's how it goes a lot of the time with waterfalls. But thankfully, I see the sign for the Emerald Mines. Didn't even know it was there. It was a kind of a family Fun place, some old retired mines where they let you pan for gems. and So we went in there to ask for directions. Of course, they had a piece of paper ready for us because everyone comes in to find where Crabtree Falls is. But before we left, we actually spent an hour there panning for gems. And we had an incredible time. It was one of those unexpected pleasures. We had more fun, I think, there than the entire day. And one of the things that we found was this. You know it as fool's gold, pyrite. I think Joel found this one as he was panning... For gold, And you'll notice the title of today's sermon is Fool's Gold. And of course, we could have take all the pyrite we found and go to one of these We Buy Gold pawn shops on Wade Hampton, they would laugh at us. But the memories we made that day as a family, the smiles on the kids' faces, priceless. And that's what I thought of as I looked at this week's passage, read through 1 Corinthians, just the reality that our gospel is foolish the world it's like pyrite to a gold dealer but to us everything. it is the wisdom of god and the rescue of our souls for all eternity and so today uh, as we go through this passage we'll see a similar contrast in fact i meant to i love tangible illustrations so pass that around Let everyone feel that pyrite that fool's gold just make sure it gets back to me or joel at the end that would be great And I want to, before we start, I want to read another passage from 1 Corinthians. This comes right before the one that Micah just led us to read. So I'll read it, read along silently, and you'll see it on the screen. Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, that's us, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this final defense we're going to see in two parts. Today we'll see the introduction, next week we'll see the heart of it as Paul preaches the gospel with King Agrippa, to King Agrippa. But for today, here's our big idea as we approach this fifth and final defense. Today, as Paul begins his final defense, we will witness a contrast between the world's fantasy and the believer's reality. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for what has been, for me, just a joy to preach through, for the most part, an incredible book of your holy word, and I thank you for Paul, and just the detailed week-by-week week look we've seen at this great man who you use mightily, and who uh, we, can st- we can still feel the effects of his work today, so as we go through this passage, just speak to us, Lord, those of us who are believers, strengthen our faith, help us to examine our lives to see what, what, what's our priority, what's motivating us, what are we chasing after, that when we leave here today, we will be more excited and passionate about your glory and the gospel mission that you've given us as a church. For those who are not believers, we pray for their salvation, Lord, that you would till the soil of their hearts and cast the seed of your gospel to produce a crop a hundredfold for your glory. And we also pray for our fellow pastor, my fellow pastor, Robert, who's not with us today, but he's preaching at Freedom Fellowship, one of our partner churches across town, that you would bless him and bless that time together there as well. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so if you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, or, or uh, use your electronic devices to get there, that would be great. We're going to pick back up in verse 23. Verse 23, you may remember last week we ended as King Agrippa and his sister Bernice came to visit the new governor Festus to pay him tribute, and he said, hey, you're a Jew. In fact, you're in charge of the temple back in Jerusalem. I have got this case you can help me out with this guy Paul. And so King Agrippa no doubt heard about Paul and his fame and said, yeah, I would love to meet him. And so that's where we pick up today. The very next day uh, when King Agrippa, King Agrippa came to visit Festus, we now have this fifth and final defense. So let's pick, pick up there in verse 23 and uh, we will read the text together through the end of the chapter. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said to King Agrippa and all who were present with us, You see this man, about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So the first thing we see here is this procession, this procession of royalty. And if you uh, remember a long time ago, I taught you that in Roman society, you had two categories, elites and non-elites. And there was a great divide in between those two categories. In the elites, you had royalty, then you had the governor level, politician level, and then you had military leader level. So really, that's who we see at the front of this procession. Just imagine in your minds, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice coming in with purple on, their royal garb, their gold crowns, uh, to all this pomp and circumstance. Then you have Governor Festus coming in behind them, probably with the scarlet robe. That was the color of the robe for the governors. And then you have the military leaders. There were five cohorts stationed in Caesarea. A cohort was 1,000 soldiers. So you have these five generals, these tribunes coming in in their uniforms. And then you have several other prominent men, maybe some Jewish leaders as well in the mix. And then finally, last of all, you have Paul. Now what's interesting is the Greek word for great, great pomp is where we get the word fantasy, the only usage in the entire New Testament. So for us, we see Luke here is intentionally showing us this is all one big fantasy, all this pomp. In circumstance. They think they're so important, but from God's point of view, fantasy. Silly. Now, yesterday was a, a day where we had a very important wedding. I had the opportunity to marry a young couple in Dacusville. Oh, wait, you're thinking of another wedding, aren't you? Yes, indeed, the royal wedding. Uh, on one side of Europe, you've got this prince marrying an American. Uh, I guess he'll be a duchess. And again, the, the royal weddings, we love those. Uh, a lot of pomp and circumstance, much like this, right? And I don't mean to disrespect, but from a biblical worldview, from God's point of view, it's fantasy, right? He is the king, the only king. And then compare that, the other side of Europe, you have a godly pastor from North Carolina still sitting in a Turkish prison, Andrew Brunson. And I thought of that as I'm looking at this text. It's the same thing. You have all these people coming in with their... Fantasy, pomp, and circumstance, and the last person who comes in, our hero, Paul. Compare the two. He is walking with the real king, Jesus, in that moment. Despite the fact he's in chains, despite the fact he's wearing a prisoner's tunic, which was nothing compared to all of their garb. And Richard Longnecker, in this quote, kind of brings that point home. He says, But though the situation was contrived to assert the importance of Roman officialdom and the inferiority of the man who stood before it, Paul, Luke's divinely inspired insight penetrated the trappings and saw that the situation was really reversed. Fantasy. The world's fantasy we see here. Now as we continue the passage, Festus introduces everybody to what's going on he, uh, he summarizes uh, the Jewish charges, and then very interesting in verse twenty five he says, "But I found that he has done nothing to deserve death. The governor here is officially declaring the innocence of Paul. very interesting, and what 's neat here too, if you remember last week's sermon, all three points from last week's sermon are right here in festus 's own words, and if you weren 't with us. We said that uh, last week that Festus was making pragmatic decisions to benefit himself, but God used each and every one sovereignly to bring about his will. So look with me, uh, starting in verse 25, you'll see the first-person pronoun as Festus is speaking. He says, but I found him not deserving death. No, God did that, right? And that was our sermon point, a servant delivered. And then you skip down a little bit. He says, I decided to go ahead and send him to Rome. Nope, God did that too. Remember back in chapter 23, Jesus told Paul, I have work for you to do in Rome. Don't worry. I still have, you're still going to have something beyond Jerusalem, beyond Caesarea. Again, God kept his promise. And then the third one, down in verse 26, therefore I have brought him before you all, especially you, King Agrippa. It's like, nope, God did that too. And that was our final point last week, setting up this week, a king evangelized. God sovereignly provides this opportunity for Paul to share the gospel with a king of the Jews. So awesome there to see that. Again, to see that sovereignty of God, that reminder of the fact he is in control. And then as we finish out this passage, one last thing to make note of. Verse 27, and really the governor's telling on himself here, right? Here's the irony of it all. He says, "'For it seems to me to be unreasonable to send this prisoner without any charge.'" Have you ever been called to a meeting at work? Maybe you've sacrificed time, you drove a long distance, and you get there, and you're like, this was a complete waste of time. What was the purpose of this meeting? That's this trial. The word unreasonable in in the Greek literally means absurd and pointless. So he's telling on himself the irony that he has called this trial that is completely unnecessary because Paul is innocent. But we know God has sovereignly allowed for it to happen because now in chapter 26, we see Paul share the gospel with, again, King Agrippa. And we'll, of course, get into that next week. But, uh, again, just an interesting set of circumstances here and a clear declaration of Paul's innocence. So a few application points for us. First off, we see the fulfillment. Again, promises fulfilled. Look at this passage way back in Acts chapter 9. This is right after... The Damascus Road appearance by Jesus, he appears to Ananias, the Christian who will be the first one to welcome Paul into the church. And you'll see this exchange here between Jesus and Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Prophecy fulfilled. Paul is now standing before a king. Proclaiming or getting ready to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I love to see, I love for us to see that when God fulfills his promises. The second thing is really just a big question for us, those of us in the room who are believers. A question for me too. What really matters to us today in life? What motivates us for all that we do? Are there things in our lives that we're chasing after that are really fantasy? Things that are important. To the world. This passage begs that question for us to take an inventory as Christians. Again, those of us who are saved, what are we chasing after? What's controlling us? Because from a Christian biblical worldview, all that matters is the mission God's on and His glory. Again, no judgment here, right? Grace. But nonetheless, the scripture's calling us to holiness always. So let's do an inventory. Let's take an inventory. And I encourage you to do that at some point this week and just open up and say, Lord, what is motivating me? Is it your glory? Is it your kingdom? Or am I chasing after the things of the world? And what I've realized in my life when I have to ask myself that question, and I try to avoid it, to be honest, it's a tough question to ask. It has to do with the idea of significance. Essentially, every human being has the same problem. And, And it doesn't stop when we get saved what is significant to me what what is significance we chase after significance and the, and really there's only two options two options at any one time we're chasing after that what which is significant in the eyes of the world again fear of man or we're chasing after what is significant significant in the eyes of our savior Jesus Christ fear of the lord so let's take that inventory uh, me too i need it and then finally Another reminder, just we made this point last week, worth making again. The Lord uses circumstances and and typically brokenness and persecution type circumstances to bring about opportunities for his gospel to go forth. And this is another example of it. And I also wanted to share an example to you from recent uh, U.S. history or world history. For those of you who are a little bit older, my age and up, maybe some of you younger know the history pretty well. I don't know, but see what this image reminds you of. This is one of the most iconic images in the 1980s. Raise your hand if you remember that. That is Tiananmen Square in 1989, the man who stood in front of the tank. And I once heard at seminary from a Chinese believer who was at our school uh, the story about how up until the Tiananmen Square incident, uh, the, the world's attention wasn't focused on China, and in their persecution of Christianity, they would often put pastors to death. But once this happened, uh, they they couldn't get away with that as much, so they started putting pastors in prison. Well, guess what happened with all those pastors in prison? They had a denominational meeting. They got organized. They got coordinated, and today, the largest house church network, I think it's like 10 million or more, came as a direct result of all of that event and all those pastors being in prison today. Again, God's incredible. He is so sovereign to use circumstances like this circumstances like what Paul's facing and circumstances in our lives to further his kingdom interest and his redemptive mission that he is always calling us as believers to join him on. And so as I said last week I'll repeat it again, as you run up against tough circumstances, uh, yeah, it, it, you're going to have that initial emotion we all do, but then ask that question, Lord, what, what are you allowing this for me to to you know find an opportunity to share the gospel or What are you doing? And then just trust him and let him reveal his will. And then as we move forward as a society and as a church, the reality is we all see the writing on the wall. Our nation is getting further and further away from Christianity, more hostile towards the church. But we shouldn't be discouraged. Yes, it's scary. But the opportunity we will have for mission and for people getting saved and revival are going to be incredible. And so let me encourage you with one of my favorite passages that I'll read, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let that passage continually encourage us. So we've seen the first part, first of two parts, and from absurd fantasy to truthful Reality. That's the contrast from absurd fantasy, all that pomp and circumstance, all that the world values, to truthful reality. Truthful reality. Let's pick back up in uh, the beginning of chapter 26. We're just going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 26, and then we'll finish it next week. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, "I consider myself fortunate. that it is, before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And one little note here that I thought was interesting that one of the commentators made about Agrippa. Now, this is King Agrippa. He's related to all the Herods, right? Luke actually pays him respect by not putting the word Herod next to his name. And he actually was the best of all of these Herods. Again, he wasn't a believer. We don't see him repent. But he was a pretty good guy. He was a fair king compared to the rest. So let's review the family tree. Herod the Great. Remember him? The Jesus Christmas story? What did he try to do? He tried to kill baby Jesus, and in doing so, apparently murdered a bunch of babies and toddlers in Bethlehem. Not a great guy. His, one of his sons, who would have been this Agrippa's great uncle, Antipas, remember him? Kills John the Baptist. Meets with Jesus. Jesus calls him a sly fox. Not a great guy. And obviously, the relationship he had uh, with his wife, too. And then this guy's dad, we met way back in chapter 12, Agrippa I. What did he do? Killed the apostle James, tried to kill the apostle Peter, and then, of course, he ends up dying by the sovereign hand of God. So an incredible family tree here, and now we have Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. But in this passage, I want to point your attention now to the structure. I told you all way back the last time we saw Paul give his testimony, but he gives it in a threefold testimony structure. I also told you that there's an evangelism training we have called the net, which I love. It teaches us how to share the gospel with our testimony. So it's very similar to what Paul does. So this week we're looking just at the before conversion, verses 4 through 11, and then you'll see next week we'll see the conversion, Damascus Road, and then since conversion. And so that's the The breakdown, again, once again, the second time we see Paul giving his testimony. Now, John Stott breaks it down a little bit differently. You'll see that at the bottom of the slide. Strict Pharisee, fanatical persecutor, and commissioned apostle. And that also is a way to look at this, but we actually see all three of those in today's passage. Let me show you what I mean. Starting in verse 4, he talks about who he was as a strict Pharisee, kind of his upbringing. Uh, very interesting that he was very orthodox. He was uh, uh, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisees of Pharisees. And then uh, nine through eleven, skip down to the bottom part of what we just read. You'll see that fanatical persecutor. He goes from being strict Pharisee to fanatical persecutor of the church. And then the final thing is the commissioned apostle, and that's what we'll focus on next week. But today, what's really interesting, I want you to I want to point your attention to verses six through eight. Because in between him talking about his strict Pharisee time as a young man and the fanatical persecutor, he takes a break and brings everything to the present as the commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. He says, And now I stand here on trial. Why? Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What was the hope that Paul's referring to? Paul's referring to the promises of salvation, to the promises of the coming Messiah that the Old Testament are riddled with. All throughout, from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of the prophets, the expected Messiah was so obvious. And any good Pharisee was expecting the Messiah. They believed the promises. They believed in the resurrection. And so Paul's making it very clear here in his defense, as we've talked about many times, Christianity is the next step from Judaism. The continuity goes from biblical Judaism to biblical Christianity. He's saying what am I doing on trial here? He, he's aghast in a way. I am an orthodox Jew and the gospel is the continuation fulfillment of everything we hold to. Everything we have hoped for. All of these promises and they're going to accuse me of something? I'm right where I should be. But I love this passage because you see these two important words, promise and hope in the promise. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. Now, uh, I don't know if you heard um, a pastor here in the South, a well-known pastor named Andy Stanley. Uh, I I just heard about these these comments he said recently. It's it's created this huge uh, uh, explosion of debate and discussion and anger amongst evangelicals. But Andy Stanley, by the way, he's the man who's given us the TV screen franchise way of doing church. Not my favorite, but nonetheless. So he apparently said recently, and I have not listened to the sermon yet, so I'm going to give him the same benefit of the doubt that I hope people give me. But apparently he said that as Christians, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, maybe it was a, a, you know, Yanni Laurel thing. Maybe he said something else and we all heard the wrong thing. That does happen. But do you see Paul unhitching himself from the Old Testament in this passage? Not at all. And remember, although the New Testament, we we already have some letters, I believe one gospel that that were written by this time, but the New Testament won't be brought together until the second century. The Bible of the first church was the Old Testament. And you you and I today can preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Oh no, we should never unhitch ourselves from the Scriptures. In fact, Daryl Bach, theologian Daryl Bach, says this about this moment in the trial. He says, in defending himself, Paul is also explaining that the roots of this new faith are, in fact, old, reaching into Jewish promise. We stand upon an incredible history, biblical history and tradition of the gospel. The gospel did not begin Christmas morning. It began Genesis Genesis 3.15, right? Amazing, amazing. These, and so we too need to hope in these promises. In fact, here is a great passage that I, I thought was very important that we take the time to read because this is one, one example of many Old Testament passages where you see the clear promise of the Old Testament that the Pharisees that the Jews back then hoped in and were expecting. And we also preached this passage in Advent, if you were with us back in Christmas. This comes from Isaiah uh, 25. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that has cast over all the people the veil that is spread over all the nations he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be will take away from all the earth by the Lord the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And if you need two people in the gospel to look to as a reminder of hope in the promise, look at Anna and Simeon back in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was being circumcised. And you see that anticipation, that hope, in the promise of the Messiah. What a great Savior we have. Now, a uh, few application points, actually several application points, and then we will be done. Again, I want to come back to that question. What motivates you? What motivates us as a church? What is it that we're chasing after? Because here we have seen the contrast between absurd fantasy and truthful reality. There's only two places to be, even as a believer. And listen, none of us are going to be perfect, right? We're not legalists here, but it's very healthy Daily, to take an inventory and then ask God to help us each day before we go into battle. Lord, help me to be about your mission. Help me to be about your glory. Help me not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So important for us. And so, you know, we see here, Paul's motivated was was God's glory. Motivation is the promise of the biblical scriptures and the biblical gospel and this hope in Christ. What is hope? What is hope? Hope is when we have faith in the promises of God. Hebrews, in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 10, I can't remember, but but hope, maybe it's 9, hope is described as our, our anchor of the soul. It's us putting our anchor of faith in heaven. And then regardless of what happens to us on earth, we look to the finish line. We look to the reality and truth that we have in Christ. And Paul is displaying that for us perfectly. Defense after defense after defense. The second thing I want us to see here, and this is really cool, I I discovered this this week, is when you look at 9 through 11, Paul is outlining how he was a fanatical persecutor, and he tells us essentially three circles that work outward. I was persecuting in Jerusalem. I was persecuting in the synagogues, which means Judea, Samaria, the surrounding area. I was even persecuting to foreign cities. What does that remind you of? The Great Commission, Acts eight. And so I think it's just so amazing how God takes them from the great persecution and brings them to the Great Commission. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that is, I mean, just think of your story. Think of what what God rescued you from. I can think of mine, 22 years old. I can think of the promise, the the goals that I had, the the things that I was hopeful for, the things I was chasing after. God saved me, it all changed. From whatever it was that I was doing to now being on mission with Him. And I love the contrast. This man going from a fanatical persecutor, not only to a believer, but a commissioned (laughs) apostle. The same thing is true for us. And one of the important Theological doctrines that I I think is so critical for us to understand is what theologians call the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. See, back in the old days, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, you left it up to the professionals. You just came and gave your money and came to church. We're not about that here at the Church of Blue Ridge. Every one of you who is a Christian has just as much Holy Spirit as I do. You have the same Bible as I do. We are all called to be ministers. In fact, according to Ephesians 4, my job and Robert's job is to equip you. You're the missionaries. You're the one that God's calling to go and reach people in your community, in your workplaces, and maybe in some cases around the world. We're here to equip you. Now, yeah, we're going to do it in our life as well. Otherwise, we'll be hypocrites. But our primary job is to equip you to go do the work of the mission. And that can happen because of the power of the Holy Spirit in each of us. I just want to remind us of that today and encourage you. And how we realize that here at the Church of Blue Ridge is through missional community groups. If you haven't come, come and be part of one of our five missional community groups. We're hoping to see that as the front door to the church, not Sunday morning. I mean, Sunday morning will always be a front door. but We want to see these missional community groups be the front door as we go to seek those who are not in church, who don't have the gospel yet. That's what we're chasing after. Come and join us as we go to do that. Finally, I want us to think back to this courtroom scene here, this defense. Think of all the lost people, the different types of lost people who were in there. What would it take for God to overcome their lostness in each and every case? Think first and foremost of King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Royalty. They would have to come to the point of putting a knee to the ground and recognizing the true king, Jesus Christ. Think of the the typical pagan Gentile. They thought the resurrection was foolishness. They'd never heard anything like that. God would have to help them to repent and actually believe in the supernatural resurrection, not only of Jesus Christ, but the hope that we have in our own resurrection at the end times as well. Think of the Jewish Pharisees. They were probably the easiest, right? Granted, God's got to perform a miracle to save anybody. But the Pharisees believed all this stuff already. Their problem was they just didn't believe Jesus was the fulfillment of all that they already believed. So they would have to come to that place like, like Paul did. Then you maybe had some Jewish Sadducees. These were the the atheist, liberal, power-hungry, greedy leaders in Israel. Probably the the hardest group of people because they had a little bit of what the king had with their power, wanting to be powerful. And then also really the pagan Gentiles. They denied the supernatural aspects of the resurrection. And I ask all of this just to say in this room for those of you who aren't Christians where are you? What is it that's keeping you from repenting and following Jesus Christ even today? Now granted, we're praying that God does what he can only do. As we saw in the very first passage we read with Micah, he chose, he chose, he chose. Because of Jesus, you are saved. God has to perform a miracle. But our hope in prayer is that you would repent and believe that God would till the soil of your heart, that these gospel seeds will take root, and we will witness the greatest miracle of all. Just like a, the fanatical persecutor becoming a commissioned possible, apostle, a dead heart becoming alive in Christ. That's our priority. And if that describes you, listen, I want to have that conversation. I want to help guide the other men and women. Would love to in this room as well. Let us know. Don't be afraid. Don't think you have a stupid question. Come and talk to me this morning. I'll be back in the back while we're singing our last two songs. I'll talk to you now. Email me. Call me. We'll come and meet. That's our priority. We are accessible as pastors here. We want to get our hands dirty in your lives. We want to share Christ with you. And finally, we'll end on this, this great passage, this, this incredible reminder of what the gospel is from Paul in Romans 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm going to invite Micah to come back up and continue our time of worship in song. And just, again, a reminder, if you have doubts or concerns about where you are with Christ, Let's talk. Right now, let's go to the Lord in prayer one last time. Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We thank you for this week after week. Even though it seems like these passages are redundant, they're not. There's so much fruit, gospel fruit in these truths. And such an incredible demonstration of Paul, defense after defense after defense. This guy did not wear out because he had hope in the gospel. He believed. Believed your promises. And I pray that will be true for us who are Christians as well. We are facing or will face difficult circumstances of a variety. And when we do, Lord, let us not lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. Let us also believe in the promises of Scripture, the promises of the gospel, and not lose heart, not give up. And as our brothers and sisters are experiencing these things, let us as communities of faith come alongside them and love them and encourage them and remind them they're not in this alone. Thank you that even though Paul seems to be alone, he wasn't. As we're reminded, one Christian and God are always in the majority. And Father, you know the heart's here. If anyone here doesn't know you, we just pray that you continue to work to bring about recognition, repentance, Give them this great gift of salvation that you've given me, all for your glory and all for your kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.